There is an argument to be made that we should be capturing all of that lifetime of value that these drugs are being and returning that to the manufacturers in price. And in an ideal system where we weren't already overpaying for other therapies that bring marginal or low value, there wouldn't be this crazy reaction of panic. That's Sarah Amand, Executive Vice President for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Later, we'll hear more from her about access to the million-dollar cures that are cell and gene therapies. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. This episode is brought to you by Precision Extract. Today is Friday, November 11th. Instead of diving into the biopharma and medtech industry news of the week like we usually do, we've got a special episode. Last month, Fierce Biotech hosted the Cell and Gene Therapy Forum. It was a virtual event where top players in the cell and gene therapy industry came together to discuss how companies are navigating manufacturing, regulatory requirements, and scientific breakthroughs. So if you missed that event, well, don't worry. I'm going to give you a brief glimpse into some of the highlights. But hey, here's a pro tip. Go to FierceBiotech.com, scroll down to get the newsletter and sign up. You'll get reminders of all the awesome virtual and in-person events we host at Fierce. But let's take a look at our first panel called Access, Ethics, and Million Dollar Cures, the minefield for cell and gene therapies. Cure is not a word we throw around lightly. In fact, we hardly use it at all because even very positive results don't necessarily mean that people are cured of a disease. But the word cure is often used among the developers of cell and gene therapies. Are they perhaps overly confident? Certainly, there is cause for optimism. There is a growing pool of data hinting at cell and gene therapies' potential. But lack of access and multi-million dollar costs have stirred debate over the appropriate price of these potentially life-saving treatments. Fierce's Max Bayer spoke with a panel of stakeholders over the state of play for cell and gene therapies and how they can become a genuine game changer for the many and not the few. The panel includes Sarah Amand, Executive Vice President for the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, Dave Lemon from Satellite Bio, Tay Salamula, the VP and Head of Global Value and Access at Novartis, and Tim Hunt, CEO for the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'm going to launch right into this. And this field is, is obviously already off and running. I'm wondering sort of what this, what this stage of it, though, sort of elicits in terms of maybe other past modalities or other past therapies. And Tim, just maybe, maybe jump in on that one. I think, Max, the kind of main thread around this is, um, uh, I think of it as uh, between you know, gene and cell therapy, in particular gene editing and recombinant DNA back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there's probably some parallels that we can talk about, but the main thread is around, you know, how, do, how are we modernizing healthcare systems to keep up with highly disruptive technology that is that has potential to be dramatic breakthroughs for patients for whom too often the status quo represents death or serious disability. That was true in the 80s and 90s, right? When we saw the early biotechnology innovations. And, and when you think about 
you know, the, the potential application of recombinant DNA. I joined Biogen, you know, many, many moons ago, 20, more than 20 years ago. And there was still the echoes of they thought, Biogen thought they'd be uh, an agriculture company in part because they were, they had corn stovers in the 80s that they were looking at, geez, maybe we really ought to plunge into agriculture, which sounds kind of crazy today. But um, they really, you know, recombinant DNA, a little bit like gene editing, was viewed as a Swiss army knife. What do you want to do, right? Gene editing, there's agricultural applications, gene drive, like lots of industrial applications, lots of things people could do. And so the first thing was the potential of where could the technology go? I think there's some parallels there. I also think there was the early kind of wrangling around how do you, what limits can you put on the technology? Should you put on the technology, right? So we saw important conferences in the 1970s, like Asilomar, right? Trying to grapple with some of these issues with recombinant DNA. We skip forward to late 2015, we see the National Academy of Science, the Royal Society and the Chinese uh, Academy of Medicine coming together. Same thing, right? Ethical implications, what kind of limits should we have on the technology? And I think you can kind of pull that thread through a little bit with the FDA. That's such a terrific segue. I would be remiss if I didn't note how, how interesting the, the agriculture anecdote is there. Um, but, but cost is, is such an uh, important facet of this. And, and you know, some, sometimes the sticker shock that the natural reaction is to some of the cost of some of these therapies, in addition to uh, their potential from a therapeutic benefit, um, so, Sarah, just knowing some of ICER's work on this, just sort of in terms of the cost, what are you finding as some of the most substantial driver of the cost that we're seeing? What are you sort of seeing on that end of why these therapies ultimately have some of these multi-million dollar costs? Yeah. So, I mean, the price is really what everyone's talking about when it comes to the access piece, because we haven't seen prices with these price tags. We haven't seen drugs with these price tags yet. That doesn't mean the prices are too high, right? So like to be clear, one of the reasons you're seeing these price tags is because for a lot of these therapies, they're single or short term, they're potentially curative. And there is an argument to be made that we should be capturing all of that lifetime of value that these drugs are being and returning that to the manufacturers in price. There's an, a fair argument to be made for that. And in an ideal system where we weren't already overpaying for other therapies that bring marginal or low value, we probably wouldn't even need to have this panel because there wouldn't be this crazy reaction of panic from those charged with paying for these therapies because we wouldn't have already been overpaying for stuff up till this point. So we have a bit of a um, cluster, so to speak, right? We have all of these factors coming together. Prices that a lot of times are fair, if you're thinking about the long-term value, when we evaluated Zolgensma for spinal muscular atrophy, $2.1 million matched the benefit that, that that drug was bringing to patients. But you had payers and purchasers who were going, I'm not sure how many of these I can afford without really big increases in premiums or really steep reductions in other benefits that I want to offer. And so then we have to start thinking about changing the way we pay for these. So I was really excited to see what Bluebird Bio put forth with Zintaglo for transfusion-dependent beta thalassemia, going right out and saying 80% refund at five years for patients who go back on transfusions. That's the kind of innovative payment model that is going to make uptake of gene therapies a lot easier to get to where we all want to be, which is making sure patients get access if they're appropriate for these therapies. 
the therapy itself and the science is innovative, so does the sort of payer mechanism as well. And so that's an interesting component of this. Tay, how does this move past that sort of first world luxury that, that we see it at now, knowing that as development increases, as it expands, that may happen somewhat naturally. But, but in your words, you know, what, how does that move towards that direction? There's really four interdependencies at play here. Um, number one, how does the regulatory framework um, support these types of innovation? And secondly, the legal frameworks to the points both Tim and Sarah made around payment payment over time. In some countries, it's it's not legal framework doesn't even allow you to do that. Secondly, critical in this area, you know, whether it's monogenic disease or now we're moving into prevalent causes, the patient identification that needs to start. In our space, it's all around newborn screening. How can you almost get that magnitude of benefit early on um, in the patient's life? And then the third is around healthcare infrastructure and, you know, our centers of excellence even equipped, you know, and trained um, to not only give the therapy, but also can they follow up the patient? There's this kind of, um, I would say, um, it's kind of illusion that we sometimes now face that it's one and done and you never need to see the patient again. But following mm -hmm. that patient up in a thoughtful way, um, as we're learning about these medicines in real time, is critical. And number four, the affordability models and, and population health that goes with that. So really, we've seen market archetypes all the way from sophisticated you know, systems like US, Germany, to you know, self-pay markets um, or a combination of, of, of both of those. Um, and you know, even now with our scale, we've been able to treat patients in markets such as Egypt, Chile, Ecuador, um, with a very thoughtful, I would say, approach with um, a dialogue with regulators and also payers. And really in former years, I, I would never have expected within three years of it, FDA approval in the United States, uh, we would have been able to scale that. So um, you know, there's a lot of land there, but our work remains uh, undone and we have to continue. Got it. The FDA you know, has been clear uh, this year and in years past that as this field evolves, it, it needs to put in the work to sort of staff up um, its review of, of gene therapies, cell therapy, so that it's sort of keeping pace with the science as it, as it evolves. Dave, speaking as the, as the head of satellite, um, you know, how can companies sort of work with payers and other stakeholders to consider value before setting a price? And, and sort of on that theme about how gene therapies are innovative, both from a medicine standpoint, what are those innovative ways that you're thinking of that maybe haven't been considered in the past or haven't been necessary? I think the first point to recognize is how unique the diseases we are often addressing are. And the reality is there's often a very um, a poor, really poor understanding of how that population actually um, develops and manages their disease over time. Mm -hmm. Because the populations are so small, um, they're often not tracked consistently, um, or that data is not assembled in any way that uh, can be useful. So the place to really start is with an understanding of the disease and understanding of the patient journey um, and really investing at the very earliest time points in, you know, sometimes um, what's called the natural history of the disease. Um, but beyond that, also engaging with um, uh, caregivers and, you know, people who surround these patients who are often um, having quite dire consequences otherwise. And that fundamental foundation of data in a 
the disease progression is important because we're really talking about trying to treat a patient once, but have that extend over a long period of time. And so really thinking about those outcomes over a long period of time allows you then to start to think about what is the value you're really providing. Um, it's not, you know, three months of blood pressure control. It's, you know, potentially the difference between sitting and walking for the rest of your life. What does that mean? What does that value look like um, for a patient, for their parent, for the, the, the family and parents in that situation, and ultimately for society overall, right? Because having um, engaged, mobile, um, uh, self-directed individuals as adults later in life has a profound benefit. Um, and so we can see these are the types of therapies we want to invest in because they really make a difference, not just for the individual patient, but for families, for communities, and ultimately for society overall. I, I can't thank the four of you enough for, for being here, for, for chatting. Um, you know, I think in a difficult conversation, candor and optimism are, are sort of good guideposts. And I think we definitely accomplished that. Brett Warner is the president of Gene Therapy at Poseida Therapeutics. He talked with Fierce Biotech's Gabrielle Mason during the Felon Gene Therapy virtual event. They talked about the evolution of gene therapy and how the space has become increasingly complicated and crowded. There are more than 2,000 gene therapies currently in development. So Gabrielle asked Brent to share how Poseida is differentiating itself from other cell and gene biotechs. After a message from our sponsor, we'll get a glimpse into that discussion. Are you ready to drive radical prescription growth for your brand? With Access Genius, you can. Access Genius personalizes your brand's market access messages to an HCP's individual practice. It fully integrates with Viva applications and automatically selects the best possible pull-through message to share with target HCPs. Learn how leaning in with Access Genius messaging helped one brand realize 4 to 1 ROI. Find out how to make market access pull through your brand's superpower at accessgeniusmessaging.com. Brent, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, Gabby, for having me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Absolutely. I'd love to just dive in and start off by discussing some of the main challenges that cell and gene biotechs may specifically be facing right now. Maybe before we talk about the challenges, I do want to talk about some of the positives that we're seeing just across cell and gene therapy, if that's all right. Um, you know, when we look at the last you know, three to six months, we've seen new approvals coming through across both cell and gene therapy. We're expecting a couple of PDUFAs coming up at the end of this quarter and into next year. So the, the excitement for me of cell and gene therapy is really starting to ramp back up. You know, it was over 20 plus years ago that we really started on this pathway of what could we do for patients as a single potential one-time treatment. You know, there was an unfortunate event that happened back in the 90s that paused quite a bit of the progress. And it really wasn't until, you know, the 2010s, uh, 2012s, when Solgensma and some of the early stage therapies really started to come to fruition. The unfortunate part about those safety issues is they happened. The fortunate part is it was able to give us enough time as an industry to pause, reflect, and figure out, you know, what can we do better and different for patients downstream? And I think that really leads us to today on the challenge piece. So first, you know, from my side, the gene therapy story overall, and even on the cell side, is, is becoming very complicated. You know, if you look at just the number of gene therapies in development today, there's over 2,000 gene therapies in development. 2,000, which is just mind-boggling to me. It's crowded. The technology is 
pretty much similar. I mean, for the most part, 90% of uh, therapies and companies are using adeno-associated virus, so the AAV. Um, and it's in crowded spaces. Like if you look at the Duchenne muscular dystrophy space, there are several dozen gene therapies all attacking that area, all using traditional AAV capsids. So from a challenging piece, first off, from an investor, an analyst, and even just from a, a patient perspective, you have all these different potential therapies floating out there for your potential disease, and it's just not clear, right? I, I think what I hear from most people is they all look the same, right? And they're all using similar technology. So those pieces, I think, have really confounded and complicated the gene therapy landscape overall. Virus technology is being utilized, um, and it's still the basis. And rightly so. I mean, again, 90% plus of gene therapies are utilizing AAV. That's where the investments have been. You know, AAVs are, are great so far, but there are a significant amount of challenges that we've seen with them so far, right? When it comes to toxicology, immunogenicity issues. Yeah, there's a big meeting that the FDA had in September of last year, really looking at even how do you scale the CMC to get to a point where you can treat you know, patients safely um, and also deliver vectors that meet the requirements of the FDA. So there's, there's a lot going on in the virus piece as well that I think also complicates and prevents some or presents some challenges for us. And then you know, the, the last piece I would say, you know, it's not easy. Selling gene therapy, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are still being worked on and thought through, and different capsids are being developed. And you know, what we're doing at Poseida is really moving beyond AAV and moving towards what we call a, a non-viral system, which we believe, you know, presents a whole host of potential opportunities for patients and the systems by being able to you know, deliver DNA without having to utilize, you know, the adeno-associated virus or a retrovirus or a lentivirus, potentially really lowering that tox and immunogenicity issues that, that you've seen pop up. We would expect to have, you know, no immunogenicity and, and limited tox. Well, you touched on this a little bit, um, but you talked about how crowded the space is right now, how a lot of the technology is similar. With that in mind, can you tell me how Poseida is kind of differentiating itself from others in the space? Yeah, absolutely. So Poseida, uh, for those that don't know, Poseida is a cell and gene therapy company. Uh, the really interesting piece and what attracted me to the organization is we have a whole host of our own proprietary technology that we've built in-house and we're really using on our mission to redefine, you know, both spaces for patients with cancer, rare diseases, and beyond. So from our technology standpoint, uh, we, we really view ourselves as a genetic engineering technology company, you know, and we have uh, multiple technologies, a gene editing platform that was built in-house called Cast Clover, which we can talk a little bit more on later. We're utilizing a super piggyback system, which is based on the original piggyback, but modified, that really allows us to deliver what we see as potentially stable and durable uh, integration into uh, hepatocytes and other potential tissue targets. And then we have other platforms um, that we've worked on and in development, one called site-specific super piggyback, which really will allow us potentially the opportunity to target any specific spot on the genome with programmability go in, knock out, and add in the, uh, the DNA. So we have this really incredible suite of technologies that we're utilizing. Uh, on our cell therapy side, you know, our focus is really around 
aloe genetic. And we've made this pretty clear. We, we believe aloe is the future for a multitude of reasons. You know, first, when you think about the downstream patient impact, to be able to get to more patients with having to provide, you know, less starting material is significant, not only on the cost of goods, but on the ability to just reach those patients, you know, particularly in some of the hardest to reach areas. Um, in August of this year, we announced a $6 billion collaboration with Roche uh, to advance our heme malignancy CAR-T programs. And we're very excited about that work and that collaboration. Um, and, you know, we look forward to moving that program forward with a leader in oncology, which is Roche. Uh, on the gene therapy side, you know, we're really focused on, at this moment, in vivo liver-directed diseases, um, utilizing our proprietary uh, non-viral technology. Our goal for gene therapy is to really go non-viral, as we talked about. And in November of last year, we announced a collaboration in partnership with Takeda, a leader in rare diseases to advance um, multiple programs, and the first being our Factor VIII uh, program, which is for hemophilia A. Uh, so we really have you know, these incredible partners with us, but also this incredible technology that allows us to do what we believe is pretty much anything. The future is looking forward. It's, it's not you know, dwelling on the past anymore. Uh, we need to take in all the learnings from the safety challenges and apply them, but uh, we, we just got to keep going. Your enthusiasm is palpable and, you know, we love having you here. Thank you. Aviato Bio is a recently launched biotech working on gene therapies for neurodegenerative diseases. Fierce's James Waldron spoke with Lisa Deschamps, CEO and executive board member at Aviato Bio. Here's a glimpse into that conversation. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, and nice to see you, James. And thank you for having us. You're kind of quite focused on the blood brain barrier and overcoming that. And of course, that's been a real stumbling block, you know, not just for gene therapies, but for tackling CNS more widely. So, you know, if we get a little bit clinical here, why are you optimistic that you've been able to overcome something that's been such an obstacle for so many other biotechs? Yeah. So, so as we all know, the, the blood brain barrier, as you mentioned, has been a key challenge uh, for treating neurological conditions. And, and, and certainly um, these, these diseases are, are not uh, any exceptions. And the blood brain barrier is the layer right between the blood vessels and the brain and is really meant to help the brain, protect the brain from any foreign substances, allowing nutrients through, but really being a, going on the defense mode anytime anything foreign enters the system. As you said, that would be true for other pharmaceutical interventions, as well as, of course, a gene therapy, especially as a person is more than a couple of years old, the blood-brain barrier is fully developed and is in full effect of, you know, providing that protection. So for with, with the work that we're doing um, in our lead program in front temporal dementia, we are going in um, intraparachymally, but specifically through the thalamus. And the rationale behind the thalamus, you know, going directly into the brain is that the thalamus serves as an information relay hub almost for the brain, receiving sensory and motor information from the body and distributing it through billions of pathways actually throughout the brain. Um, in addition to that, for our program in particular, which is front temporal dementia with a GRN mutation, um, we also know that the thalamus is found to have the highest expression of progranulin compared to any other area. And so it makes double sense for us in this case. And then what can you share so far? I mean, it's still a preclinical asset, although we'll come on to later, you know, your ambitions and, and maybe, you know, share a little bit of detail on your timeline, what you can tell us so far. But what, what have you really, you know, what have you taken away from your non-clinical and preclinical work? 
Absolutely. So to date, we've done um, some non-clinical work as well as preclinical work. So non-clinical work starting in um, mice and sheep, um, really showing extensive biodistribution, nice uh, restoration of progranulin levels, and a really nice balance between what we believe will translate to a therapeutic benefit as well as a safety profile. So um, nothing in the liver and uh, the, the serum looks really clean. Um, so again, striking the right balance between efficacy, what we hope will translate between efficacy and safety. We then, of course, you know, as we continued on our, our, our current to date phase of development, um, just recently completed our regulatory enabling studies. We haven't yet disclosed all the data, but that now, of course, is in NHPs as required, um, looking at um, it's a GLP tox as well as a biodistribution study. And um, we'll disclose that information later this later next year, but it has enabled us to continue moving the program forward into regulatory submissions. And we hope to start our clinical or initiate our clinical trial as early as the end of this year in Europe, and then subsequently pending IND acceptance um, in the first half of next year in the US. So, I mean, all of that's going to require money. And obviously, you guys managed to secure, you know, 80 million, I think it was in a Series A back in December. Investors are obviously still keen, you know, we're seeing to invest in the right biotechs, but obviously the market overall is going through, you know, a tricky period. People may be being slightly tighter with their purse strings. You know, was it a struggle to get investors uh, excited in this area or because it's a gene therapy, because you're looking at dementia, you know, did you find it's relatively easy to get people on board? Yeah, so I think, you know, what, what no one can argue is the significant unmet medical need that exists in these disease areas, right? There's nothing else available today for these patients. It's quite an, you know, obviously, you know, today's a burden for society overall. And there are a number of, you know, programs in development, just again, reinforcing the unmet need that exists. So for investors, it all starts with first, is there a significant unmet need? And then can you truly have a transformative impact? And, um, you know, again, the work we did to date. So to date, we've raised 96 million. We started with a 16 million seed, and then that moved into an 80 million Series A. And obviously, you know, the data that was generated doing the non-clinical work from the seed got everyone really excited to then put 80 million in, which, as you know, is quite significant. Certainly, I think in 2021 was one of the highest Series A in all of Europe and actually pretty high even by U.S. standards. And so I think what people are excited about, even in today's market environment, is um, where there's an unmet need, where you have the potential to have a transformative impact and where you've demonstrated that potential, at least at the starting point, obviously a lot more work to do, but everyone is very excited. We have a syndicate of eight, um, all top tier blue chip investors who um, are really excited about the opportunity at hand. You know, is it the candidate itself that's most important there? I think all, the, all of those things need to be true, right? You have to have the unmet need, right? In order to demonstrate then that you're going to have an incremental benefit either to standard of care, which in some cases is nothing, right? Just palliative care, or, you know, or something that, you know, may not be as transformational. Um, so it all starts with the unmet need to get people even interested and excited. Uh, but then from there, you know, then the, the bar is set high, right, to be able to show and demonstrate that the candidate, um, that the construct, that the delivery, right, all has potential to translate into kind of addressing that significant unmet need. And again, we're still early days, but to date, the work we've done from our non-clinical that was recently presented at ASGCT in May of this year, all the way now into our regulatory enabling studies, have all supported the kind of investment thesis from the onset. So we're excited. 
we have a lot more to do. And, you know, we hope that translates into other programs as well as we go forward. Obviously, in your time in Novartis, you know, you played a real role in the commercialization of Solgensma, which, you know, holds a key key role in terms of that first gene therapy to go on the market. The other side of it was it was it was one of those first therapies that sparked that conversation around pricing and gene therapies, which we've seen come to the fore again with Bluebird more recently in Europe and some of the issues they've had finding a price that you know they can agree on in, in various countries. How much of an issue is that for gene therapy biotechs like yourself still, you know, still yet to enter the clinic, yet this is, you know, is this still at the back of your head? How are we going to get this reimbursed? Whether you're going to struggle in certain you know, areas and do you need an, an argument ready now to make to regulators? Or is that still a while away yet before you think about that? Yes, I think, you know, it's always an ongoing um, dialogue to be having both with regulators, reimbursement bodies, et cetera. I'm really optimistic. Um, as you say, I've had the experience firsthand with Solgensma, with a wonderful team who launched that product all around the world. And you know, all, all of the successes can be attributed to the, the ongoing work that was done, not only once we got marketing authorization, but all along the journey while we were in the clinic and, and getting ready to, you know, to obviously prepare for, for launch. So it's important to have an ongoing dialogue with all the stakeholders to your question. I still believe fundamentally that um, therapies that offer transformational impact in areas that have significant unmet need will get reimbursed. I think the value will always be tied to the disease area that it's in, right? And, and what offset, what cost offset, burden of society, um, healthcare utilization. I mean, those things have to be built into your trials. You have to be thinking about that all along the way. You have to work with the advocacy community, of course, caregivers, clinicians, policymakers, et cetera, things like genetic testing. It all, will, all of that will feed into um, you know, what, what will be the value proposition at the end of the day. But it first has to start with the unmet need. Second has to start with the premise that you will offer a transformational impact. And then third is just, you know, making sure that throughout the whole journey, not only at the end, you're planning for success and you're you're building that into your, your understanding and what you need to what you need to deliver on at the end of the day to ensure that patients have access to this therapy, because that is the most important thing that we come at it from making sure that patients can have access and it can be in their hands for those patients that need it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. You know, I found that a really insightful conversation um, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as, as I did. I did. Thank you for having me. That's it for The Top Line. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.